Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Political Party Replay Series. This edition is with William Hague from 2017, and he is as funny and as wonderful as you would imagine. And uh, this was a treat. This is one of my favourites. Um, and whenever I'm asked who the funniest guest in the history of the series is, it's it's William Hague, and it's based on this interview because he's just fantastic, and he has such a distinctive voice, obviously, which I have mimicked for many years. Um, actually, sitting opposite him really helped me do it. Uh, I think there's a bit in this where I do try it on him, which is just Terribly awkward because I'm not entirely sure I do myself justice with it, but he takes it very, very well. But what a funny bloke. And you think about the Tory party in 2017 and what it's going through. Um, it is, uh, and this is June 20, 2017, sorry. So you have to Brexit, Theresa May and all that lot's going on. It, this is just absolutely phenomenal. And a real demonstration of why uh, people were so wrong to underestimate him at the time. Um, because he was always clearly very bright, always clearly very sharp. And his wit is unlike anything in politics. I mean, there's no one since as as funny as him. And and he has real... Um, and sometimes it's only when you are physically opposite someone that you realise all their... Because when they're on telly, obviously, they're in fully professional mode. On an evening like this, in a cabaret bar, there is a different vibe to them. And you get more of a sense of their personality. It's just such a playful, boyish um, charm to William Hague. Anyway, you're about to experience it, so I'll shut up. Hopefully soon I'll be able to announce some live dates. Um, but in the meantime, I hope you're enjoying this replay series. And this is from 2017, William Hague. Thank you. Are we here? We are. Hello. I'm very excited about tonight's guest. Uh, he's someone I've been a fan of for 20 years since he first became leader of the Conservative Party. It's really, undoubtedly, probably the best person we've ever seen at Prime Minister's Question Time, uh, a talent that at the moment uh, is sadly sorely lost. He is uh, probably one of the most popular statesmen and one of the most able politicians this country has produced in my lifetime. I've wanted to interview him for years. I cannot wait to ask him so many questions and I'm sure you're excited as well. Please give a huge welcome to William Hay. William, welcome to the show. Thank you. That was very nice. I should have had you with me in 2001 when, uh, <laughs> when I was failing to be elected Prime Minister. Well, um, I mean, it was... I was going to ask you about that later, but it, it was... It was a... <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> but it was a campaign, really, that... that, that... Did it bear any similarities to this campaign, do you think? No, sadly not. The, the, the leader of the opposition made no progress whatsoever <laughs> and was greeted by a wave of apathy wherever I went. And it was, actually, you said in your, you were joking earlier about how you know, the campaigns never used to make any difference. 
yeah. and this time it did in, in the election we just had. Well, it certainly didn't make any difference in 2001. <laughs> people had really tuned out of politics. Um, and who can blame that? Actually, everything was going well in the world and uh, you know, there was not much to be angry about. Maybe. But do you look at Corbyn's performance and think, well, you know, as, as someone who'd been that far behind themselves, actually, if you'd have done things differently, perhaps you could have won in 2001, or do you think that would have been completely impossible? No, I, don't, I didn't have anybody like Diane Abbott on my side. <laughs> <laughs> uh, to bring about this great surge in the vote. <laughs> and, um, uh, and I concentrated on actually putting real arguments to people, and I had a fully costed programme, so I had no chance. Uh, whatsoever. <laughs> when, you, when you compare it to Jeremy Corbyn. Uh, but no, I, no I, I don't feel I could have done that. You know, there were not, um, and, and maybe, and, and all compliments to him, all credit to him, actually, on, um, I, I obviously don't agree with anything, virtually anything that he believes or says, but, but I, I do credit, give credit to him for his uh, performance in the campaign. But no, there was no chance of doing that in, uh, in 2001. You know, I would say I was giving a big speech somewhere and there would be, you know, like 20 people formed up there. Not 10,000 ready to hear what the Tories would do at the next election. Maybe that was my fault. Maybe it was just the, uh, maybe it was just the circumstances. I don't know. Uh, you, you say that the manifesto was fully costed, although I do remember there being an £18 billion pound black hole. So Eight submit, billion. Eight billion. Yeah. So something that Oliver Letwin had to go into hiding. Oh, and this was one of my mistakes. <laughs> because I was giving an interview to the Financial Times, and uh, I said, oh, we have a fully costed program, we're going to make eight billion pounds of savings. And I said, then I said, you could go and ask Oliver Lewin about it. He will tell you all the details of it. So they did. They went and asked Oliver Lewin. And he said, he said, yeah, it's quite logical. You see, it's eight billion. And then as you move on year by year, it's 16, 24. And uh, so, no, it's eight billion. So um, then we had to say, Oliver, don't do any more interviews. Then everybody wanted an interview. Then Oliver went into hiding. Then the Labour Party came out with a bloodhound that they paraded around uh, looking for Oliver Lewin. And it became, this was all, and I, all because I said to the Financial Times, you go and interview Oliver Lewin, <laughs> who is one of the most brilliant people you will ever meet in, I don't know if you've had him on this uh, show, but the, the, one of the most brilliant people you'll ever meet in politics, but, you know, ruthlessly, intellectually honest. <laughs> and um, people don't always fully appreciate honesty in an election, as we have just found out. <laughs> It, was, it, it must have been a remarkable personal experience to go through that. To, firstly, the excitement of becoming the leader of the party that you'd, you'd joined at a very young age, you became leader at 36. Uh, there must have been part of you that thought, well, I might be Prime Minister one day. You, you'd probably gone into politics with that ambition. And then in that sort of four-year expanse between 97 and 01, realised that perhaps the, the mountain was too high. Mm -hmm. at, at any point during that period, maybe during the fuel crisis, did you think, actually, we, we could do this, we could topple Blair? Yeah, maybe. I, mean, I don't think I actually thought that by that stage, but uh, there was three weeks when I was going to become Prime Minister. Uh, in um, sort of the September, it was something like September the 8th to September 29th, 2000, year 2000, when the country ran out of fuel, they were all furious. Suddenly, politics seemed to have changed, and then as soon as they got fuel in the tank again, Blair was fine again. Uh, everything went back to normal, we went back 20 points behind in the polls. Uh, and that was it. But no, we knew it was a really difficult task. Maybe I didn't appreciate just how difficult. After all, until that time, every Labour government in history, if you think, you know, 1945, 1960s, 1920s, had only lasted six years. They'd never had more than six years mm. in office. So we didn't know they were going to have 13 years in office. And I thought, well, it's worth rolling the dice. It's worth um, 
seeing what happens. Came up double one, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, <laughs> but you still have to roll the dice now and again. Did you feel, because a lot of people say, oh, Diane Abbott gets a lot of personal abuse and, and Corbyn and Labour people have it harder, but you had a lot of personal abuse from the, particularly I remember from the Daily Mirror during your period. Yeah. I, was, I was a paper boy during that period and I used to feel guilty <laughs> posting it because of the awful front pages. Oh, I, I was a dead parrot in the sun and they were on my side a lot of the time. Uh, imagine what the Mirror was like. There, there were, um, actually I've saved a lot of these things though because I have them, I have a lot of them on the wall. Uh, at home, and I have a private eye cover of me and Cecil Parkinson, uh, my mm. dear friend, the late Cecil Parkinson, who was, who I brought back as party uh, chairman. And um, there was a bubble coming out of my mouth that said, "I want to bring unity to the party." And there was a bubble coming out of Cecil's mouth that said, "Is she a goer?" Addressing some rally and the nearest thing I could do to rally in Bradford, and, I, and it was clear some guys had all put condoms on their heads uh, in an imitation of me. They thought, <laughs> and I had to carry on with a straight face giving this speech while these condoms all wandered around. You'd be amazed what you have to do as a uh, as a politician, and so, so, so it doesn't bother me at all. You know, just carry on. <laughs> there was. Uh, sleaze was a word that defined uh, the period before yours, really, the, the last uh, term of the major government. And some of that was still sort of in the DNA of the, of the Tory party brand when you were leader. Mm -hmm. and, yes. Uh, people like Shagger Norris and Geoffrey uh, uh, Archer were still... In fact, Archer was your candidate for London mayor. Well, he was for a while, yes. And um, that was one of my mistakes. I made many mistakes uh, that, that um, perhaps I wouldn't have made had I been older and wiser at that time. Um, you know, because because there I was trying to set up a democratic party. This was the new. This was the way to get rid of mm. the the old image and the sleaze. So I thought we'll have everything done democratically. We'll elect our candidate for mayor of London democratically. But they elected Geoffrey Archer, <laughs> um, and then there were people who said to me, "Look, he's bad news. Uh, never mind this democracy business. Uh, you get rid of him as fast as possible." And I said, "Well, actually, I've just said everybody can vote for who they want. How can I get rid of him?" Um, and then he got it was in a new scandal and got you know got, and said well you've got to go now, um, but I should have done that earlier, uh, and so you do learn, but you learn on the job, unfortunately, as a uh, party leader unless you've been around a very long time. Well, you deal with not just with uh, people like Geoffrey Archer, but every party leader has to deal with factions in their own party. Uh, and the point at which you became leader, there was the sort of Ken Clark faction that probably wanted to modernise mm -hmm. perhaps more than you did, and then there were people to the right of you trying to pull you in the other direction. Uh, and then there was Michael Portillo, who mm -hmm. uh, had his own sort of personal agenda, uh, it seemed, simultaneously while he was Shadow mm -hmm. Chancellor. Mm -hmm. How difficult was that relationship between the two of you? That was difficult. Actually, it was difficult... Um but it was difficult between our advisers more than between us, which is a common thing in politics. And if you think uh, of Blair and Brown, you know, for instance, um, it was a lot of it was between their advisers stoking it up. And I think that happened between me and Michael Portillo. And it was also a rather uneasy relationship because he'd come back in as if, you know, he might be the leader next, and I was the leader. And um, I partly only stood for the leader because he'd lost his seat. So it was an uneasy relationship for that. 
for that reason as well. But it turned out, of course, he perhaps didn't really want to be the leader in the end. And I think he was very cross when I resigned quickly. Uh, there's a huge satisfaction in um, upsetting people by resigning quickly. <laughs> because, um, you know, it takes a lot of fun out of it for other people and makes them make decisions. And uh, he had to decide then whether he really wanted to be the leader, and it sort of turned out he didn't really want to be. And I think, his, as, as far as I'm aware, much happier, you know, in a, in a different life. On the train. <laughs> on, the, on, the, on the trains, exactly. Were you ever tempted to do a kind of TV uh, renaissance? You know, a lot of politicians, Portillo did Portillo's Progress at first, didn't he? In 1997, I think it was a three-part Channel 4 series. Ed Miliband's doing this radio stuff. Were you ever tempted to sort of do a... Um, no, I don't really feel the need for, for that. I did, um, in, in a previous period when I was out of the front line, I did have I Got News For You a few times, and, and I really enjoyed that. Um, but I had to stop when I came, became Shadow Foreign Secretary, um, because, of course, you can't go on a programme out without insulting foreigners. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, that was, uh, <laughs> you know, and, and undoubtedly I had said things on those programmes, like cheese-eating surrender monkeys and uh, things like that. And um, so that put, a, put paid to that. And I don't really feel that having done... I, I have the benefit of... Um, I've left politics twice, really. <laughs> Uh, and now for the second time, but really left it now uh, at, the, at the 2015 election, left the House of Commons and so on. And so I don't feel the need to do all the things I did before. I'm, I'm having the best time I've ever had in my life. And then people, then people say, don't you miss it uh, in government? And I look at the, what happened in the election and Brexit is happening that I wasn't in favour of. You know, and the state of politics today, do I miss it? Really? Not to take a good hard look at yourself. I really, uh, I do not miss it. But people do look now, don't they, at both front benches, and there seems to be a lack of top-level talent. People look at you as someone who's experienced, not just in leading a party, but as a, as, a, as a successful foreign secretary. I think a lot of people would look at you and say, well, why don't you just renounce the peerage? stand in a by-election, come back and leave the Tory party. Oh, that's your secret plan. Uh, <laughs> I see. Uh, no, not secret now you've said that. Uh, good job that's not what I'm planning, isn't it? Or you, you would have blown the entire exercise tonight uh, on this uh, stage. But no, I think for me, when you, when you really leave, you've left. I mean, I, I was in two minds whether to stand for the leadership right back then. You know, and as I said, I, I wouldn't have done probably if Michael Portillo had held his seat. But lots of people urged me on and I did my duty. I did the night shift, really. I, um, I held it all together, hopefully put the Tories at least in shape for the future a little bit. Um, and held it together, but I got precious little thanks for it. And then I was in two minds whether to come back again, but David Cameron became leader, and that's, will you do foreign affairs? So I did that for nearly 10 years, you know, and, and so I feel I did come back and do my duty. So I have done that. I don't have to do it again uh, in any way. And also, that people also think politicians must be obsessed with politics, so that, and often people in politics can't understand why you might have left. Because funnily, politics, I always think politics, everything else in life looks, looks monochrome when you're in politics. You're obsessed and consumed with politics. When you leave politics, everything else gets more interesting. Uh, books and art and music and gardens and whatever it may be, whatever your interest <laughs> is, um, it all gets much more interesting. The whole world turns to colour. Um, and, uh, but people assume, oh, you must be looking for a chance to get back in. No, no, I'm enjoying being out there in the colour. Uh, in, in the rest of the world. 
And so uh, I would take a lot of persuasion. Well, uh, no, I mustn't even say that. Uh, oh, so... Uh, no, no. <laughs> I cannot be persuaded, <laughs> is the way to put it, uh, but, to go back again into the front line of politics. But not, maybe not for enjoyment, but, but out of a sense of duty, perhaps? Well, look, if we're... You'd never say never, because if we're on the edge of the Third World War and it was an existential crisis, and they said, as a government of national unity, we need everybody who's ever had experience. Well, then it's your duty. But I'm afraid leaving the EU and having a minority government does not constitute the third world. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, uh, so others can sort that out. But with, but with Donald Trump, uh, who's volatile, with Vladimir Putin, who's volatile, with the security situation that we You're have... You're not making it more attractive. <laughs> <laughs> Keep persuading me. <laughs> but I think a lot of people would, would say, actually, that you, you, you would be the Tories' best hope. You'd be a lot more popular now. They can say that however much they like, but uh, they, they can say it to themselves. Um, um, by the way, the, um, just to, to be fair, to my, there are 318 MPs there in the House of Commons, and there is tremendous talent for the future, and I'm not just saying that to change the subject. Although, uh, hopefully, I will succeed in doing that. <laughs> um, but I'm saying that also because it, it is noted that the 2010 intake into the Conservative Party, 2015 intake, were, were very strong. Mm -hmm. uh, there's lots of future chancellors, foreign secretaries, leaders there. Admittedly, they're not yet there, but they are on the way. So I think rather than everybody hankering after people like me, they should focus on... Those people coming next. How about that? So no, that's good. So who are the sort of who are the sort of? Oh, it would ruin their careers for me to single them out. <laughs> then please. Uh, oh, <laughs> you know who they are. <laughs> but just give us a flavour because you look at you know Boris and David Davis and maybe Saji Javid Amber Rudd. But who are the kind of who are the under twenty ones? <laughs> No, well, there, well uh, there's somebody I can mention because uh, it's a special case. My own successor in my seat, Richmond, Yorkshire, you know, Rishi Sunak. He's mm. a brilliant guy. He's not under 21. He's I mean, 37 or something like that. Um, but absolutely outstanding, brilliant guy. And uh, impressed everybody so much. And he astonished everybody in my constituency. They, they have put together their stereotype of what they wanted as an MP. It wasn't him, but he came along. He was so brilliant. They voted for him quite rightly. Um, and so he's an example of, I don't want to spoil his um, career, but since he's my own successor, I can mention him. And there are many others like him who I will not spoil. Promises <laughs> <laughs> uh, questions, I, I was watching it today, and it, it goes on longer now than it, than it ever did when you were mm -hmm. uh, uh, facing Tony yes. Blair. I think it's widely regarded, even if people have been totally non-partisan about it, that you were probably the, the greatest performer at Promises Questions uh, that probably there's ever been, certainly, certainly post-war. I've seen, I've, I was obsessed, and still I'm obsessed with it, and I remember seeing a documentary with you where you said to outfox Tony Blair, I think you said, he had his uh, folded on alphabetically. <laughs> I wondered when this was <laughs> And I would deliberately go at one end of the alphabet to the other. And you would ask sort of alternate questions so that he would then have to file through his... <laughs> yeah. No, I did. No, I worked this out in great detail. Although, remember, I had nothing else to do. Uh, he, he was busy running the country, and I was twiddling my thumbs, hoping one day to run the country. So I went into this in the most minute detail. Um, and it, the weak point, you see, was he had a one, at least for a while, until I think he rumbled this, he had two folders. 
Now, this is a, you would not think this was such a cataclysmic weakness, but it is. If you're ever trying to answer questions, don't put the answers in two folders, because you can only look at one at one time. Uh, and once I'd realized it was two folders and that it was alphabetical order, then, of course, you could calculate. I'm going to ask about a subject in the first folder, and the next one is in the second folder. And then it would have to be like this. So I, and then uh, to make it work, what, you, what I would do is only reveal the subject of the question in the final word. What you must never do at primary school is say, I'm going to ask about taxes today. What's his explanation of the increase in taxes? Because by then, he's got RST taxes, right? You've got a full page of how the Tories did worse than Labour. I mean, easy. Just read it all out. So you have to say, what's his explanation for the increase in? Pause. And it could be health waiting list. So it could be unemployment. You ever and then they say, taxes. And sit down. And then he can't get to that page, so you've got him off balance, and you hit him with another. Then I do the multiple moving strike, a series of questions <laughs> that were thematically related, but not alphabetically. <laughs> um, and, um, and, and he was still very... I mean, let me take my hat off to him, though, as well, because this was like nailing jelly to a wall and, um, and really high, you know, fast-moving jelly. As well. <laughs> <laughs> Digitally enhanced, you know, turbocharged, whatever, jelly. Um, uh, he could move fast um, uh, on his feet. So it was hard to pin that. He was difficult at Prime Minister's questions. Um, but um, those, uh, those were among my techniques. Or, or sometimes I was nothing like a sophisticated, and sometimes it was what I used to call conventional carpet bombing. Uh, which is when you just fling all the ammunition you've got at the other side and they fling it all back. It's a totally predictable subject. Um, and the object is not to outmaneuver them. It's just to cause such devastation politically that it's got to be on the 10 o'clock news. You, know, you had this furious row in the House of Commons. So different techniques for different um, circumstances. What was your relationship with him like? away from the Commons, because Prime Ministers and leaders of the Opposition, both members of the Privy Council, there are certain things that they have to talk about, away from yes. the cameras and away from other parliamentarians. Did you find him a constructive individual to, to work with? Oh, yes, I respect him, and I, I get on with him now, uh, actually. And, um, and, and I used to then, I went round to see him, one of the first times I went round to see him when he was the new Prime Minister and I was the new leader of the Opposition. He said, uh, or one of us said, who do you think has the hardest job, me or you? And uh, he, I said, I do, at the same moment he said, you do. <laughs> uh, which was not a very encouraging beginning. Uh, anyway, because actually, leader of the opposition is harder than being prime minister. You know, not in its workload, but in the choices facing you and in the pressures on you, uh, actually. But, um, no, so I was always able to have a good chat with him. And believe it or not, with John Prescott, you know, his deputy, who sometimes I had to ask questions of and was my sparring partner on other occasions. And um, I once remember, because I think you asked um, when Tony Blair was on that you were talking to him about the Cenotaph. That's and right, so yeah. And he was once away and John Prescott was at the Cenotaph instead. And I was an experienced Cenotaph goer. <laughs> and John Prescott wasn't. And we were standing there with the wreaths and everything and the Queen was coming out and uh, the band was playing and John Prescott said, out of the corner of his mouth, what do I do now? And I thought, well, I could really have... <laughs> <laughs> 
I don't know. I was tempted to say, oh, you pick up the Queen's wreath and march backwards. I could really have, uh, but of course you don't ruin an important national occasion. Um, so I was there out of the corner of my mouth saying, you know, put your wreath down when the music stops. And, um, and you help each other out. And even people who the, the public see bitterly debating with each other are perfectly capable of um, getting on fine behind the scenes and even helping each other out a little bit. How hard is it when you're leader of the opposition to avoid... Uh, the issues of the day, you know, the populism, and, uh, and it was one thing, <coughs> Blair, when he was trying to sort of out-banter you, really, would, would do this theme of the, the bandwagon, and this week it's yes. armor-plated, and this week it's amphibious. How, how hard is it <laughs> to resist the issues of the day and politicising things that perhaps aren't necessarily mm. the fault of the government? It is quite hard, actually, because, um, you know, you would get a lot of your own side saying, why haven't you missed this big opportunity? Uh, you know, this was the moment to uh, take them to the cleaners on this issue, which would usually be sudden crime or disaster or so on. Um, and I think it's easy to make mistakes. And again, I, I'm, I don't claim to be perfect at all. I think I've made mistakes about that. And, um, you know, I made a big issue over the... I think I can't even remember his name now. So this is all nearly 20 years ago. But uh, the man who shot a burglar. Tony uh, Martin. And, yes, yes, exactly. And that, you know, the law should be changed oh, on right. uh, things like that. That was depicted as getting on a bandwagon. Now, funnily enough, I did feel strong. I wasn't making that up. I, um, I felt strongly about that. Anyway, but it looked like getting on a bandwagon, I think. I don't think it did us any good, particularly. So I was saying what I thought, but it didn't do the Conservative Party uh, a lot of good. And, uh, no, you have, to, you have to be careful on these things. In terms of... The cacophony in the House of Commons, because when you watch it on TV, it's loud, but actually the, 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 the mm. speakers on your TV don't do justice because the, the, mm -hmm. the microphones are, are directional. Were there ever any points where you, you couldn't hear what was going on or you, you're sort of tempted to react to heckles or were you quite good at focusing on the job in hand? I th the part of speaking in Parliament is remembering that um, you have got the microphone, albeit it's not, as you say, it doesn't dominate, um, but... Um, uh, you keep on, actually, because uh, once you stop, you've lost momentum. <laughs> and if you're ever, when I was leader of the opposition, there were 400 Labour MPs on the other side. They could make a lot of noise. Um, and once you stop, once you, once you show them that you will stop if they make a noise, well, why shouldn't they make a lot more noise? So you have to never hesitate, uh, really, and just keep ploughing on. Um, and, uh, and be quick, you know, to react, but not to react to every heckle. Otherwise, if you start reacting to heckles, well, they'll do another hundred heckles to make you react to them. So you have to be very disciplined about it and keep facing forwards. You see a lot of people in Parliament who start, because they're addressing somebody behind them, turn around. But actually, then you lose the volume. The, the volume comes from the microphone in front of you. So you have to keep staring at the enemy, even though you're addressing... A real enemy behind you. Um, <laughs> um, uh, and, and keep both of those things in mind. It's, very, it's a bit like, I used to think of it like martial arts. And uh, one of the reasons I took up judo when I was leader of the opposition was uh, there was a close similarity to um, keeping your balance, knocking your opponent off balance, having mental focus. So uh, before responding to the budget or something like that, I would go and do a bout of judo. With, with Seb Coe, is that right? Yeah. Yeah. And um, would you ever hurt him? Yes. Um, <clears throat> he stopped doing it because I knocked him out twice. <laughs> um, but um, uh, of course, it wasn't a fair way. It's because Seb, you can't catch, 
right? Because he's built like a greyhound. So you can't get hold of him. But if you do get hold of him, you've got to. That's, uh, he's finished. So um, uh, it was a bit unfair on two camps. Really. Uh, but he became a great friend uh, at that time. And I partly survived as leader of the opposition despite all these adverse circumstances because of uh, him and Danny Finkelstein and George Osborne, mm. who was then my young political secretary, um, because we had such a good-humoured banter going all the time in the background, and they all gave crucial support to me in different ways, that I still enjoyed it, that I still... Um, it was still fun to go to work, unbelievably, as leader of the opposition, uh, you know, 40 points behind in the opinion polls, because of the people I had around me, which I think is a great tribute to them. Uh, George is now uh, editing the, the London Evening Standard. Yes, uh, isn't he? Yeah. And be becoming quite a sort of vocal critic, it seems, of the government, certainly on the front page and, and in some of the editorials. Do you think uh, he's uh, disloyal to be doing what he's doing? Well, no, I think when you're a newspaper editor, you're, uh, you're in a new world. You know, and his job is to sell newspapers. Uh, I don't agree with every... I told him, um, I saw him a few days ago, I didn't agree with his dead woman walking description of Theresa May because, I said, there is no such thing as a dead person walking, if you think about it. In, uh, in politics or in everyday life, have you ever seen a dead person walking? If you're walking, you're not dead. And that is, uh, that is true in politics, too. So, uh, you know, never, I never I write off could... somebody who's still walking. But you could still, be, you could have maybe been running and have a heart attack. And then... <laughs> <laughs> there's a sort of, there's a, little... there's a bit of a mental... Yeah, it would be a very short walk, uh, uh, I think. Well, but will it um, be? I mean, this is the question, isn't it? Is, is that... Well, I don't know, look, I have been, uh, obviously, you're asking me what will happen to about Theresa May. I gave her her first job in politics. And on the front bench, the first, first front bench job uh, when I was the uh, leader 18 years ago. And uh, she's always been very good to me and very, we cooperated well in the cabinet when I was foreign secretary. So I am not going, you can't expect me to um, say a word against her. And I won't, the Conservative Party is rigorously loyal to its leader until the day it stops being uh, <laughs> its leader. Uh, it, it is an utterly ruthless party, and that, that's one of the reasons it's so successful over hundreds of years compared to most political parties in the world. So I don't know what it will do, but I think they've been quite right to calm down at the moment, because really to add, you know, to add on top of everything else that's been going on in the last few weeks, a leadership crisis within the government would be really foolish, I think. But um, so um, I don't know. I'm not going to be the one who stabs her in the back, even on your delightful show. <laughs> You'd have to stab her in the back. Or the front. OK. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but you've been brought in, according to the papers, as a sort of uh, as an advisor now to shore up the, the Downing Street operation. How formal is your role? Are you based in number 10 now? No, no, I have not been brought in. Uh, I had to issue a tweet on Sunday um, <laughs> while I was enjoying my Sunday morning. And uh, my advisor called me up to say, there's a story in The Sun, I think it was, uh, and other papers, that um, you're going to be an advisor or you might be the deputy prime minister or whatever. And uh, I said, this is what Twitter is for. Uh, we are going to issue immediately. There is no truth in this, that I have no plans to, uh, to do that. But in line with what I was saying earlier to you about, um, you know, I have left government. I will, I will, I will give advice. I do give advice if asked informally. And I give advice in, the, in my weekly column in the Daily Telegraph 
some of which turns out to be wise and some unwise. Um, but so I advise in that sense, but I, I'm not returning to a formal role in government. One of the pieces of advice you gave in your Telegraph I knew you were was, say was to have an early general election. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Brilliant advice. <laughs> but actually, you see why I should not be returning as an advisor. <laughs> but when the story broke, everyone thought, well, this is, you know, Haig is an, is an outrider. He's been primed by number 10 to sort of test the water, to, to send a balloon up. Was that all your own doing? Or yes. No, absolutely it was. No, no, I, I, I make a point as a columnist who is a um, former party leader and so that I don't consult anybody about my column. You know, I, write, I sit there on a Monday morning with a pot of coffee and I write what I think. And I particularly do not take bids or suggestions or whatever about what I should write about. Um, so, no, I just thought that I, most of the column, to, to slightly defend myself, was about getting rid of the fixed-term Parliament Act, so there could be an election before 2020, although I did say there's a serious case for an early election, so I'm not totally wriggling off uh, what you said. And I think there was, actually, most people thought there was. Mm. And, um, and there was, and I still think there was. But, uh, of course, uh, it's, it's no longer a um, revolutionary thing in the Conservative Party to say we didn't have a very good campaign. <laughs> and uh, we really ought to have been able to defeat a nationalising, high-taxing, crypto-Marxist uh, Labour Party uh, in the election. And we could easily have defeated them. But it, it was not a good campaign. I mean, that they were wrestling with... Uh, you, you made uh, entirely justified fun of the manifesto earlier. And you could see both parties wrestling with the same problem, the intergenerational fairness problem. But the Labour Party brought out a manifesto that is, we'll give a lot more money to the young people. Um, we don't know where we're going to get it from, but we'll give all this young money to the young people. And the Conservative Party brought out a manifesto, we're going to take money from the old people. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. Uh, so... <laughs> This was not, um, you know, it was, again, honest, but uh, not very electorally effective, clearly. Do you think Theresa May should have done those debates? I think so, probably, in, the, in retrospect. I, I quite agreed, again, with the initial um, approach um, of not doing debates when you're far ahead in polls. But, of course, the dynamic of the election changed during the campaign. And uh, so I think by the time the debate came around and Corbyn changed his mind and decided to do it, that is, you know, there was a good case for a change of approach at that time. It was incredible how, how sort of quickly the Tory campaign fell apart. The, the, the start of the campaign, the phrase strong and stable uh, seemed to resonate with enough mm -hmm. of the public to win. Yeah. Uh, that even people who wouldn't vote for Theresa May said, well, you know what, in an uncertain world, maybe she's got something. And then within days... Yeah. She started to look fragile, she looked allergic to the public, she looked shaky, she looked unconfident. All these traits that actually she's always had were suddenly magnified during the campaign. Do you think that she was just totally incapable of fighting a different campaign, or did she have bad advice? Well, I honestly don't know. It's a bit unfair to... And again, I'm, um, I'm hoping to successfully dodge this question. But, um, uh, but I also think that because I don't know, I wasn't on the inside of that uh, campaign at all. Um, I think it was definitely a mistake. In my experience, it's a great mistake not to have one person in charge of a campaign. You know, and that's been the case, hasn't it, through, from ancient history. You know, there were catastrophic battles the Romans lost because they decided one consul would be on charge on one day and another one on the next day. And they'd change command every day. And then were all massacred by the Carthaginians. And uh, there's 
similar thing happened in this case, <laughs> I think, of um, not having unified command. So I think that is true, whether or not people are giving good advice uh, or not. Um, and I think also, you know, it was the first election campaign for a lot of these people. Mm. And, uh, you know, you, um, people knock David Cameron, as they have been, but uh, by the time he came to, um, you know, to the last of 2015, he was a very experienced campaigner. And, um, and, and that shows. So, um, so I think among advisors and maybe among some of the leaders, there was some inexperience there. But, um, but again, I can hardly complain, can I? They did far better than I did uh, <laughs> in 2001, so um, albeit from a different, in a different situation. So I'm not going to knock them too much. Mm. Uh, perhaps Theresa May's uh, performance uh, hasn't been done justice. She, she put five points onto the, to the, to the Tory vote since David Cameron. She got uh, a significant number yes. more votes than David Cameron did. But the one thing that absolutely took so many people by surprise was the success effectively of Jeremy Corbyn. And uh, yes. people on all sides have to give him credit that he is definitely more popular than even his own supporters thought he was. Yes. And he could now potentially be Prime Minister. Do you think he ever will be? I think I might stop giving predictions, having predicted <laughs> the election would be OK from the Conservative point of view. But I, I think probably not. You know, I think the... The Labour Party are now having this, uh, you know, fit of uh, triumphalism and going to Glastonbury, as you pointed out, <laughs> and saying to people at Glastonbury, oh, he's going to be Prime Minister in six months and he'll get rid of all the nuclear weapons and so on. Um, but, you know, you, you can't fight the same election twice, or very rarely. Um, clearly, Labour picked up a lot of support and did well, particularly among a young generation, and particularly in London, uh, in this last campaign. But the other parties are not stupid. You know, they can see that. Oh, now. some of them are. And, uh, <laughs> okay, well, the big ones are. And uh, they can see that. And they're not going to go into the next election with exactly the same manifestos as before. They're going to redesign those, bearing in mind what happened for, with Labour support this time. So it won't ever be exactly the same again. And indeed, the, the level of scrutiny you get when people think you're going to win is higher. Mm. Um, including do your numbers add up and, and so on. So, um, so I think they will be kidding themselves if they think, oh, well, there'll just be another election in six months and uh, it's just one more heave. And politics doesn't actually work like that. But is there a risk of this if you're a conservative? And, and this is, you know, there may be people of all persuasions here tonight. Um, yeah, there is a risk uh, of this happening. And it does, there's something important happening after the global financial crisis. You know, in, uh, we've, but with a bit of a delay, there's Bernie Sanders, who nearly defeated Hillary Clinton. Uh, and if he had, might well have defeated Trump. Mm -hmm. And Monsieur Mélenchon in France, whose policies went up to 100% income tax. I'm not sure how much revenue we thought he was going to get <laughs> from, uh, from that. And Corbyn, you know, with much harder left policies than we saw from uh, Bill Clinton or, uh, you know, Francois Hollande or Tony Blair. Uh, the left has changed and are closer to power than for some time. And I think that, that in a way, that means politics is back. You know, it, it means um, if you're a young person now looking at politics, this is quite exciting. There is going to be a battle of ideas again um, about where we go. And can, maybe conservatives should now, you know, we, we have to engage with that and have our ideas for the next 20 years. 
because you were politicised in the in the nineteen seventies, which was a period of upheaval for uh, for for Britain under a Labour government, uh, as many would see it. And you famously, at the age of sixteen, uh, gave a thought you were going to go for that a famous end. speech at the yes, Conservative never live it Party Conference. Uh, um, um, but it's really funny because you say to a, what 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 gets lost, I think, in in the, the the repetition of the of the clip, is that what you say is really ballsy. You you turn up to a a Tory party conference, very stuffy and very old, and your opening line to them is, some of you may not be here in 30 or 40 years' time. I know, and but I spoke to them 30 years later and realised a lot of them were still there. <laughs> <laughs> but, some of the same people are sitting but, in the front row. But the, <laughs> <laughs> but the guts to say that at any age, but the guts to say it at 16 is... I think I didn't know enough to be scared. You know, I went to the conference at 16 years old and I thought, um, I need to tell them what to do uh, tomorrow. <laughs> uh, so I'll just, I'll write a speech. And, I, and I'm not sure you could do this today as a teenager. Actually. In those days, you could just put your name on a slip of paper and hand it in and say, I want to speak. There was no vetting of what you were going to say, honestly. Um, but I put, I'm William Hague from the Rother Valley, and I've just won the Yorkshire Television Public Speaking Competition. So they knew that I wasn't going to fall flat on my face or something. And uh, ten minutes later, I was up there. They didn't know me. I didn't know anybody in the Conservative Party. And I thought, I'll egg on Margaret Thatcher. I didn't know that she didn't need any egging on at all. <laughs> um, but uh, so I egged her on. Um, and, uh, and it's weird, actually, that's 40 years ago this year, and um, the most common thing that people say to me if they stop me in the street or on a train mm. is not, uh, you know, we appreciate what you did as Foreign Secretary, or, uh, you know, we remember you as Leader of the Opposition, it's, you were that 16-year-old, we remember your speech, and I feel like, same thing, I've dealt with wars, elections, <laughs> and, and still you're on about that teenage speech, it's, it's got lodged there in people's minds. I suppose because you don't really sit from any other politician, certainly not this generation. It, it was unique. I mean, what what did your school friends make of it? Well, they uh, well they loved all the fuss to begin with. You know, uh, the TV news came to film an average day at school with like five hundred kids all crowded around. This is very average, of course. Um, then they got very cross because when we went out for a drink in Rotherham pubs. Of course, it was now known how old I was. Uh, and so it would be, no, sorry, we're not serving you or your friends. So that well, it turned out not to be a very smart move uh, from that point of view. But you'd already had about 15 pints by that point. So, uh, but no, they took it in their stride, actually, as did my family, as I had, as I was made to do by them all, and go back to being more naughty if you can be normal, if you like that, as a um, teenager. I feel I'm living my life in reverse, actually. I was an elder statesman in my teens, and I, I tend to be a thoroughly irresponsible person in my 70s. Uh, I'm, I'm on a steady route uh, there. Um, but, uh, no, it, it, was a, it was a strange experience. They say everybody should be famous for 15 minutes, and it was one of those experiences. I don't think it was a particular asset in my later career, probably a disadvantage, and I get teenagers who come to me now, if I go to a conference and say, I want your advice about giving a speech like you did, and I say, my advice is very clear, don't do it. <laughs> um, and they look so crestfallen, and, and, and I say, well, if you're going to do it, here's the advice about how to make a speech, but uh, the first advice is don't do it, actually. <laughs> you touch on the sort of underage drinking there, which is a rite of passage for many of us. I think my generation was the last one that could really go out and drink in pubs. 
Uh, and obviously there was the infamous claim of 14 pints a day when you were 16 or whatever. I mean, maybe not drinking 14 pints a day, but still quite a bit. <laughs> well, you want me to uh, repeat this? Uh, no, uh, no well, I, actually, this came about. This is another. This is the sort of thing that happens to you as a politician. So you, I'll give an interview about you know, and they want to ask about your life as a teenager and so on. So um, they say, what was your holiday job? And I say, well, my dad owned a soft drinks business, and we uh, we wholesaled wines and spirits and beers. And so I delivered, which I did, and actually it was great. It was a big part of my education. That from the age of fifteen. Every school holiday, I was there delivering the kegs of beer into the working men's clubs around um, Rotherham and Barnsley. I learnt a lot on those, um, <laughs> uh, those visits, um, and particularly about old labour, real old labour, and particularly about heavy drinking. Um, and, um, and I'd say, well, we, uh, of course, you had a pint of hard work on a summer's day, then you have a pint of beer at every stop. And I hadn't really thought about it, but the, and then the interview, of course, said, so how many stops would you have in a day? Oh, ten. Um, and uh, then you'd go out for a few pints in the evening. So in a day, you might have had 14 pints. Well, yes, possibly. And uh, that's, how that all, that's how that all gets going, which is true, of course. And um, as a teenager, you can do that. Actually, and uh, you probably did that. Oh, absolutely! Yeah. Well, there you are. <laughs> I feel much better about it. Now. <laughs> but was it, it, it in, a, in a way, sort of Britain's attitude with alcohol? Not this should be the, the focal point of the interview, but has changed a lot, hasn't it? Not people yes. don't go to pubs anymore. There is a sort of there's a conservative problem in that, isn't there? In that pubs are community hubs, particularly in rural communities, and it, and it feels as if though supermarkets selling cheap alcohol in a way, yes. actually. And not just ruining pubs, but there's, a, there's an erosion of community happening as a result. No, there is. Well, let's hope uh, driverless cars reverse this trend. Honestly, what is going to really take off if they have autonomous cars in right? country pubs? <laughs> oh, really? Back in business. Sit oh, back and go on a tour. Um, uh, <laughs> I can't wait. Or around London, if you like. <laughs> Two hill walkers in five years' time to go. I think I just saw William Hague in the back of the driver. Yeah, nobody driving. Pants around his ankles. <laughs> I have slowed down a lot since then, by the way. It would only be two pints for me. Uh, your period as Foreign Secretary uh, was, uh, as you say, a comeback of sorts, uh, and it propelled you really. It's a sort of more popular period in your career. You'd gone through, obviously, quite a bruising defeat in 2001. There is something in the, the British culture that likes it when people... We know we like to build people up and break yes. people down. But there's also... There's a great um, satisfaction in seeing people come back and come back better and come back stronger. Mm -hmm. I mean, did you feel, when you were Foreign Secretary, more popular? Did you sense that, actually, your, 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 your profile and that your reputation had changed? <laughs> Well, I suppose I've, I didn't often, uh, I honestly didn't often think about that. And it is a funny thing, again, as a politician, that the less you care about your popularity, um, the more it goes up, uh, <laughs> funnily enough. And I didn't care anymore about trying to be prime minister. You know, I, I came back to be foreign secretary to support David Cameron. That was it. And he knew I'd come back for that, that I wasn't going to do any other job and that uh, I wasn't, you know, then I would finish after that. So we had a good understanding about that. And um, therefore, I didn't mind if I was um, attacked or not. I gave him frank advice, and I wasn't manoeuvring to do anything else. Uh, and, and that was a really pleasant experience. I can really recommend to uh, politicians, try doing it without further ambition. 
um, because really you relax with it, your colleagues relax with you, and you can just do what you think is the best thing, hopefully. Um, so I, I deliberately came back to politics on a different basis. Having been leader of the opposition, trying to be prime minister, that was the first 40 years of my life, uh, I came back, uh, when David Cameron asked me to, on this uh, consciously different basis. So I was going to do it for a time, and then, um, you know, and not become prime minister. So, um, so I suppose that was better received. And also, when you're the foreign secretary, as long as you're doing a vaguely uh, decent job, you know, often you're handling bipartisan mm. issues and positions. Not all the time, but you can take the opportunity to really stand for some cross-party issues, and that helps to get wider support. Mm. But you, you're a foreign secretary. You've previously been known not just as the opposition, but a funny person. Like you say, you, you've done Have I Got News For You. And then your successor, the foreign secretary, is also someone who's a very funny person, who's also done Have I Got News For You. But <laughs> somehow seems to have less of a statesman-like vibe <laughs> about him, Boris. I mean, is he... He's not in the same well, mould as you, is he, really? Is he... Well, he's very, uh, well he is a... Um, uh, he's a politician who moves the dial, isn't he? You know, he... he possibly change the outcome of the referendum on the EU himself, possibly. Mm. He's that influential, <laughs> which most of us can't claim that if we, whatever we say, the country will go that way um, or that we tip the balance. So um, I think never underestimate Boris. And he's a brilliant guy as well. Um, so, yeah, he has a different manner. Uh, that is true. And, and it is true as Foreign Secretary, you do have to stop telling jokes. You know, and I'm, I'm saying about my own experience because, um, as you say, I, I love giving after-dinner speeches. Yeah, have I got used to in the past and things. But I found, after a few days as Foreign Secretary, no more joke because there is always somebody, you know, there's a British national in trouble there. There's a war starting there. There's a, so you really have to just go deadpan serious. And I, that, maybe that's a bit harder for Boris because he can't help being interesting, you know, and, um, and you also, sometimes you have to be really boring as foreign secretary. You have to go to press conferences in other countries and your objective is that nothing you say is reported. Um, <laughs> is, honestly, it is because you don't want people to notice you're on that, that you're talking to that dictator about, you know, what happens next in Central Asia or whatever. Your objective is to be entirely below the radar, even though you're talking to people. Um, and um, that's obviously harder for Boris. He's, he's, <laughs> he's always interesting. Um, but um, again, I'm not, I haven't come here to knock him. Uh, I think he's a brilliant guy, and uh, I hope he does very, very well in that job. What techniques, then, if you're doing a, a press conference like that, do you deploy to stay under the radar? Well, there are ways of just, you know, just as it's possible to be interesting, it's possible to be excruciatingly <laughs> boring. Um, and, and to phrase things in a very vague way. Um, and and the, the easiest thing is to pick up the civil service brief and read it out. <laughs> you know, because, rather than to prepare your own speech. And if you do that, you're almost guaranteed that nobody will know what you're talking about. Uh, so that's the simple thing, just read out the file that they give you. Uh, that's what I recommend. Uh, one of the issues you had to deal with uh, was Julian Assange. Yes. At the time, was wanted uh, on uh, rape charges. He then holed himself up in the Ecuadorian embassy. Yes. Uh, and for a period, it, it sounded like you were going to sort of, maybe not personally go in there, but certainly perhaps send uh, the SAS in to, to get him out and, and extradite him. How difficult was that as a scenario to handle? And was the British government at any point 
going to go in there and get him out. No, I mean, the only way you can do that is to um, break off diplomatic relations with Ecuador, you know, and then it ceases to be diplomatic uh, um, territory. Um, and, and so then it would be a different situation. But you can still argue about that uh, then. And so um, you know, I think we, we had a discussion about all the options, that's all, but that wasn't a very attractive option, nor any of the others. Uh, having police stand there at great cost for years hasn't been a very attractive option either. So in the end, we've just had to, you know, everybody's sat it out, really. And um, I think the Ecuadorians have often been thoroughly fed up with the situation. And I used to meet the Ecuadorian foreign minister and try and find a solution. And I would point out that given the European Convention on Human Rights and the conditions attached to being extradited to Sweden and so on, the idea that he was by some circuitous trick going to end up being executed in America was ridiculous. You know, we, we, can't, exp we can't deport people we want to deport um, because of uh, uh, judicial rulings. So this was not going to happen, which is the sort of thing he's always been frightened of. Um, so, um, so by his own choice, really, he has sat in there all this time, and I think we've probably done the best thing, which is just to forget about him. <laughs> in terms of, uh, it, it, and I'll, I'll open up the floor after this, but um, when you first became Conservative leader, one of the people that you were, I think it's right to say, keen to learn from was George W. Bush, because he pioneered sort of compassionate conservatism in America, and uh, the Conservatives and Republicans are sister parties and have close links for a long yes. time. What do you think you could learn from Donald Trump? <laughs> How to win elections. Because <laughs> um, <laughs> there's been another huge shock, of course, and uh, how to use Twitter. I mean, uh, again, let's, uh, just like we said, let's give some credit to Jeremy Corbyn, even if we don't agree with him. Uh, you have to give some credit to Donald Trump because he defeated all conventional methods of, of fighting an election. Um, and really, almost everything he did, we all laughed at, and it turned out to be phenomenally successful. And, and he's dominated the traditional media by using his own media, by, by using tweets uh, and so on. So there's got to be a lot to learn about that. Maybe he has shown how we fight elections in future. But um, again, I don't agree with many of it. Well, I've agreed with some of the things that he's done, but... Um, I, I was a friend of, I'm a friend of Hillary Clinton's, and um, I thought she, was, she would be a great president. But of course, uh, Americans don't actually take any notice of what um, we think in an election. Uh, so there was no point really shouting that. I did write some articles about that, but it, it didn't do Hillary any good. <laughs> Another of my great political successes uh, over the last 20 years. But if you'd have been in America, would you vote for Hillary ever? Oh, yes, definitely. Yes. And you know, remember, the, the British Conservative Party doesn't really have a direct equivalent in America. Um, the Republicans are our sister party. Because really, British Conservatives now are fiscal Conservatives, but social Liberals, mm. um, which is a combination I'm very happy with. Um, but there isn't really that, that party doesn't exist in America. Um, the fiscal stance goes with the social stance, and Republicans tend to be very hard line on social issues. America, as you know, has a much more, a much bigger religious influence in politics than we do in Britain. Um, so uh, yes, I would. There are many, there may be many Republican presidents I would have voted for, but in this election, I would, I would certainly have voted for Hillary Clinton. And have you spoken to her since? Uh, no, we've exchanged 
correspondence. Uh, rather sad correspondence, <laughs> really, about the situation. But uh, no, I will keep in touch with her. And uh, and she made her own mistakes in the campaign, you know. So um, well, and and she won in votes. Of course, there is that as well. Um, she was uh, a few million votes ahead, but the American Electoral College pushed it the other way. So um, so now we have to work with the Trump presidency. If I was in Boris's shoes now, I would be doing that. You know, the British government has to work with whoever is president of the United States, and I think it, it's wrong to knock them for doing that, but it's much more difficult than working with the last few presidents. Do you think it will, this, this will set a course now where actually America and Britain do drift apart a little? Well, I think it's bigger than that. I think there is a, a fragmentation of the Western world mm. going on. I know that may sound a bit apocalyptic, um, but that is going on. That, that's the main reason I was against leaving the EU. I'm no enthusiast for most aspects of the EU, but I think we're going to be so preoccupied now with pulling ourselves apart from the rest of Europe. It detracts from dealing with other issues, or, it, or it, there's a danger that it will do. At the same time as America is getting more separate from Europe, and America's got energy independence, which Europe doesn't have. Europe's got this huge migration issue from Africa and the Middle East, which America doesn't have. And you can see over the next 10, 20 years, America and Europe's priorities drifting apart, and Britain being somewhere in the middle. And uh, this is not a good situation. This is one of the main things to worry about, I think, and to have ideas about how to solve over, over the next decade. Well, it's always good to end on a laugh. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you all need a drink after that. <laughs> well, I'll let you that with the question. So, uh, let's uh, take a few questions from the audience. If I can ask for very quick questions, one sentence questions and one sentence uh, answers, as William does have to get back to the House of Lords to, uh, to vote. So, um, put your hand in the air and we shall find you with the roving mic. Is anyone in this section that would like to ask a question? Yes, the lady there. Tim will bring you the microphone. Just let us know your name and uh, I'll say a, a swift. Question and swift answer would be uh, appreciated. My name's Jacqueline. Matt, I missed you doing your Donald Trump impression. And I wondered, William Hague, do you do a Donald Trump impression? <laughs> <laughs> I don't do any impressions because um, I can only do me. Um, and I tried. Well, you know, that the sometimes um, they did, I, I think it was one local radio station in Reading were playing this game where on somebody's birthday they'd have some well known person ring them up try to disguise their voice, and then they had to guess, you know, who it was who'd called them. So they said, would I do that? Of course I'll do that. So I ring this lady in Reading, and it's live on the radio, and I do my best to say, you know, happy birthday! And um, they say, who? You've got to guess who it is. She says, it's William Hague, of course. <laughs> <laughs> because it still sounded like me. So I can't do it. I don't know how he does the... Um, well, well, we need it now. We need Trump now. Well. <laughs> one, of the things, one of the things with Trump is how often he grimaces. So, by the way, <laughs> and the little looks, not happy, by the way, not happy at all. <laughs> with what I'm hearing today from Secretary Haig or whatever his name is. I don't, don't want to know about that. By the way, they're already saying this is the most successful presidency ever, by the way. And that's not just me saying that, that's other people, so. <laughs> Thank you so much. Very good. <laughs> very good. The key to doing you, by the way, is to go very low and very low and then very high. <laughs> <laughs> Immediately. And you know the other time was when... Um, <laughs> <laughs> 
who am I doing myself? Um, the, uh, an impersonator of me got through to Tony Blair like in his Stone. bedroom, um, pretending to be me, uh, got through to him and started having a conversation with him. And Tony Blair realised uh, when the impersonator said, can I borrow your exercise videos? That, uh, <laughs> and it was not me. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, a, it's amazing who you can get through to. Okay, uh, yes, the person at the bar there. Thanks. Sorry, one sentence, but just very quickly. If young people approach you and ask for advice on how to do speeches at Conservative Party conferences, please give them proper advice rather than saying they shouldn't do it, because we have a lot to learn from those people. Yeah. But on a proper question, Jeremy Corbyn, um, he... He really has shown some really impressive movement um, within the country. What do you think the Conservative Party has to learn from that? Because you mentioned how all other parties will notice that, they'll mm -hmm. start to adapt. What do you see the Conservative Party doing as a result of that? Yes. Nationalising uh, the railways? <laughs> uh, by the way, I do, say, I'm well, I do say don't do it, but just to lower that, just to so they realise that, you know... It won't all necessarily be easy, but then I do give them advice about how to get involved, whatever party. Uh, I think you did. I think you did but, say that initially. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. But yes, but then um, um, on Jeremy Corbyn, well, you know, this the generational um, generational inequality has got to be tackled by all parties. Now that doesn't mean they all have to copy each other um, in what they propose, um, but you have to look at all the different elements of that. And uh, one is housing, of course, and particularly in London, a big one is housing. And I actually think, uh, uh, what I say is that there are certain things you can do in a minority government, because, um, you know, why not bring together all the mayors of the, you know, all the recently elected mayors and mayor of London and local authorities of different persuasions, and even all the parties in a, get them all to... Um, agree, or at least or to propose their own proposal, on what we do to break through all the barriers to constructing more housing more quickly in this country. Um, and then that's part, that's only one element of how you show young people the system will work for them. Um, but that would be a good start, <coughs> wouldn't it? Because that's part of the problem. Um, and, so, and then you try and do that with each element. But and I think for the Conservative Party, another element to it is um, you've got to have a pro-enterprise message, you know, this, the, the choice people are going to have, whichever way they go, is this more nationalisation, bigger state idea of uh, approach of Jeremy Corbyn, or there's got to be a contrast to that, which is the real jobs and prosperity of the future will come from successful businesses, and uh, we're going to make sure young people will find it easy to succeed in that. And, and uh, that would take a much longer question than I'm, uh, answer than I'm allowed to <laughs> detail all that, but these sorts of ideas should be among the answers. Do you, think, do you think the Conservatives and politics in general can learn anything from the style of Corbyn, though? Because he has done things differently, perhaps, in the way that, that Donald Trump does. He, he has been anti-establishment. He has behaved in a way that mm -hmm. so-called career politicians or machine politicians don't. Do you think the Tories will uh, adapt their style to deal with Corbyn? Well, that is more of a personal thing. You know, you can't invent Jeremy Corbyn, thankfully. Uh, you've got, you've got, you know, he just is Jeremy Corbyn, and um, you know, and, and there is this appeal of the outsider in many Western electors. There's Trump again, of course, Trump or Macron, and from a very different uh, philosophical viewpoint, or Corbyn have benefited in recent elections from being the outsider, not part of the established political order. In fact, I wonder if Corbyn has actually benefited from much of his own party, not 
being in favor of him. You know, mm. it, it underlines the fact he's an outsider. Um, so you can't invent that. You're either like that or not. And, uh, but people can come along, as Trump, Macron, Corbyn illustrate, from all parts of the political spectrum. Maybe some of those new talented Tories I was trying to persuade you exist. Um, could be like that. Mm. Indeed. Uh, yes, the gentleman down at the front. Uh, hi. Um, out of um, all the foreign, sorry, out of um, all the historic leaders we've had in Britain, who would you want to bring back to take the party forward? And can you also say the word Benghazi? <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'm not sure which leader I would take to Benghazi. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the unfortunate thing was I did have to handle various crises in Benghazi, so um, I had to say that quite a lot. Um, well, who would I bring back? I don't, well, I'd have to bring back uh, William Pitt, uh, wouldn't I? Because I wrote the book about him, and I never lose an opportunity to uh, say uh, <laughs> it's in its tenth edition in paperback. Um, but um, uh, uh, you know, there was a, uh, a real youthful talent prime minister at 24. You know, you want somebody who's um, you know an unconventional figure. Well, there we are, 24, and. Um, Prime Minister for 19 years, so you get a load of experience as well. How about that? Um, and he uh, took the country through an extremely difficult period, including difficult period of the whole of Europe, uh, fighting Napoleon. Maybe he's the man to uh, bring back to life. Okay, is there anyone on the balcony? Yes, there is someone up on the balcony. Uh, William also wrote a book about uh, William Wilberforce as well. Oh, so thank you for the uh, yeah. That is also available in the shops. Okay, there's the chap on the end. Oh, chap on the yes, microphone's coming. Yeah. Hi. Um, so you said you were a uh, you were a strong public speaker. Is there any advice that you would have for Theresa May? She's a little frazzled today. <laughs> um, no, I, well, I, giving the prime minister advice and uh, you mean between these four walls, just between. Yeah. Um, it's all off the record. Uh, is always. Uh, <laughs> In an off-the-record podcast. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I gave this advice to Theresa May. Um, no, I do, but a, a key part of advice on public speaking, of course, is, uh, is to be yourself. So um, you really must not try to turn somebody into yeah, something that's a problem. different from what they are. Um, and so, uh, you know, you have to make the most of your own style. Uh, and so that's my... So I, I'm not going to presume to change the um, public speaking of the Prime Minister, but that's what I say to anybody. Make the most of your own personality and, uh, and style rather than try to copy somebody else. So I think I'll just stop there before we get into real trouble over that <laughs> You don't have to. Yeah. I know I don't have to, but I'm, uh, I'm a loyal sort of person. Okay, someone else on the balcony? Oh yes, the chap just here. And I would say one more from the floor. Uh, so sorry, I'm also American, but uh, uh -huh. <laughs> but uh, you talked earlier about the West splitting apart, basically with the U.S. and everything. Where do you see the U.K. falling in terms of that versus the U.S. and the EU? Well, I hope it will still have um, close relations with with both. You know, there will still be the special relationship. I think there'll be more differences over policy. So you know, there is Trump revoking the. Um, America's support for the Paris Climate Change Accords, well, that's a big difference with the UK. 
Um, so there'll be more differences than before. But on a daily basis, you know, when you're in British government or in American government, you do appreciate the massive daily cooperation in uh, intelligence, in counterterrorism, in nuclear technology, in diplomacy. So we will still be fighting for many of the same things in the world, really, whoever is president of the United States. Um, so I think that will be maintained, and um, they'll be less, will be different from Europe in more respect, and free to be different from Europe. There, is, there are some upsides to Brexit, but on the, on the big issues, you know, of how to handle Putin, uh, how to have the right relations with Turkey, the future relationship with China, the West does need a coordinated um, strategy. So uh, I hope part of the role of the UK is to ensure there is such a strategy. That is, the UK is in a position to argue for that with Europe and the US, in a weaker position leaving the EU than we were in it, but we are in a position to do that. So I hope that's our role. OK, and the other chap on the balcony? Um, talking of Americans, it seemed that one of the uh, great friendships you struck up as Foreign Secretary was with Angelina Jolie. Uh -huh. I was just wondering if you'd talk a little bit about that. Whether you uh, gave her any advice about maintaining that relationship with your successor. Right. So, uh, and no doubt you wanted to come on the show uh, as well. Um, yes, no, um, it, was, it, was, it was a strange alliance to begin with. Um, and um, uh, but, but it's, it's been a very productive one, and we continue it, actually. We're both now visiting professors at the London School of Economics because we helped to found the Centre for Women, Peace and Security there at the uh, school. So we were both lecturing there in the last term, and we continue to work in, in a more limited way. Now, I've left the government on um, preventing sexual violence, and we, we also just published two months ago our um, updated um, protocol on how to investigate and document crimes of sexual violence, which is being translated into many languages, used by people all over the world to, uh, to launch <laughs> prosecutions against people who, who order mass rapes in war. So it, it's, uh, to me, this is something I'm very passionate about. There are a couple of issues I've kept on working on after leaving government. That's one of them. And um, stopping the illegal wildlife trade in ivory and rhino horn is the other one. So I still spend a lot of time on those issues. And uh, she's a great person to work with. Uh, <laughs> she is, but, I mean, she, she's fun to work with, but also she's really, she's a bright person, bright and dedicated person, and, um, and works phenomenally hard, and, and sometimes you, um, people think, you know, these actors, actresses, Hollywood, A-list, and so on, have these very glamorous lives, and they do in many ways, but from my limited knowledge, and it mainly comes from knowing her, they also are incredible hard workers, so, um, you know, the young person who's aspiring to be that, bear that in mind. I'm sorry if that was a more serious answer than you were looking for. Well, but uh, that, that's what I've found with her. But he, he did also ask about perhaps Boris's relationship with Angelina Jolie. <laughs> was he sort of keen as he go, come on, I, let me have her number for God's sake. Give you know, yourself. I, come on, I, you know. I think that might be too risky. <laughs> Risk indeed. Uh, it's been a real, real pleasure, William. Ladies and gentlemen, great, great William A. Yeah. What a star. I need to get him back on. Um, what a... I mean, that was seven... six years ago. 
Incredible. What a guy. Um, that was from 2017, William Hague, as part of this political party replay series. Please leave a five-star written review. Tell your friends, your peers, your underlings, your equals, just everyone you know. Tell the postman, tell the people at the dry cleaning shop, taxi drivers, anyone you encounter about the show. Spread the word, and I'll see you soon. Ta-ra. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.